Welcome to the OA Virtual Kitchen Sink Meeting Podcast. Visit the Los Angeles Intergroup at oalaig.org for information on how to join our meeting live and how to donate to support this meeting and our podcasts. The opinions expressed on the Kitchen Sink Podcast are those of the individual speakers and do not represent OA as a whole. And now, our speaker. Hi, I'm Rachel. I'm a compulsive overeater and bulimic. Um, I might as well just state my abstinence right up front. Uh, No recreational vomiting. Um, No beating myself up, mostly in my brain. And rigorous honesty. And that third part, the rigorous honesty, is the most crucial thing to helping keep me abstinence. I can't state that enough. So I have a tendency to get stuck on what it was like. So I made some notes. Usually I just speak extemporaneously, but um, I thought I didn't want to get stuck there this time. So what it was like, I am 56 year, 55 years old. I'll be 56 soon. I was born in New Jersey. My mom was a very low bottom alcoholic um, with probably a borderline personality disorder. My dad was a sex addict with uh, a narcissistic personality disorder. So you can imagine how much fun they were to be around. Um, My dad always made it clear to all of us that we were completely unwanted. And if it weren't for the, the accidental pregnancies, that he would have some glorious life that we were preventing. Uh, and my mom was just messed up. I apologize in advance for any F-bombs I drop in here. It's normal for me. That's where I come from. Uh, but I'll try to curtail it and keep it to a minimum. Um, so here's one that's interesting. I don't know this for sure, but in program, I have come to suspect this and to have a really deep instinct about this. And I have learned to trust my instincts and my feelings. And that is very different that I can think of something and be like, I believe that to be true. I, I am equipped to, date, to, to know things. Um, so I think that even as an infant, the family situation was messed up enough. I don't think I was picked up and held very much. I really suspect that I was only held mostly when I was fed because it got to hold the baby to feed them. Um, And so I think that from a very, very early age, I learned to associate food with comfort and love. I, like I said, I don't have proof of that, but that's really what I think is true for me. Um, So my home life was uh, chaos, anger, neglect, and a lot of emotional manipulation from our mother. Um, I never felt welcome or wanted. I never felt like I fit in. Um, I always felt like I was a part from the rest of the world and just couldn't belong and and wasn't wanted there. Um, And and I think I started using food for comfort by around first grade, like seriously. Um, I still really struggle with feeling wanted and feeling part of, even in these meetings, I struggle with that. That's why I'm like, ah, you don't wanna hear me speak. Um, But I, you know, Those are some of the earliest things I learned about myself. And it's taken me many, many years to learn that or to understand that the things that I was taught about myself from my parents really weren't true. They were like their reality, but they're not my reality. And that can take a very long time to, you know, to change. 
Um, let's see. I started cutting school in fourth grade because I felt safest home alone. My mom would go to work. I'd cut into the woods and go back to the house and watch TV all day and then leave when I thought it was close to her time for her to go to work. And, uh, and I always got caught because she'd come home and feel the back of the TV and it was warm. So it's like she knew I, <laughs> I was there watching TV all day. But I did it anyhow because I was so dreaded going to school. Um, you know, I think we all know that alcoholism and addiction are family diseases. I think anxiety is a family disease and my family has it. Uh, mm, yeah. So, and I, this is the other thing I thought about. There are a lot of paradoxes in addiction. Um, like I don't feel safe out in the world around people. I feel safest alone. But when I do go out in the world, I don't feel safe alone out there. I need a buddy or a wingman or a dog or something to help curb my anxiety and make me feel grounded and safe. Uh, by the time I was a teenager, I weighed probably about 250 pounds. Um, I got sent to fat camp two, three years in a row. I don't remember, but I, you know, I, that was over the summer. I'd lose 40 pounds and then I'd gain 80 over the winter. Um, and I think I'm like 12 years old at this point. So that was pretty dramatic. Um, and here, there, there are these periods of time in my life where even though I had no conscious awareness of it, I know that I had a higher power working in my corner because like at age around 15, I found a copy of the Scarsdale diet book, like this crappy little teeny paperback book. And I picked it up and I went on a diet and I lost hundred pounds just by myself, no support from anybody else. Cause my family didn't do support. Um, so, but by, I was also, by that time I was suffering from anxiety so badly that I became virtually agoraphobic, uh, and actually had myself hospitalized, you know, at age, I think I was probably 17 or something. Cause I was just losing it. I was having such bad panic attacks. I couldn't deal with it. I was the one who had to ask for that help. Like, hi, I'm suffering. Do something. Help me. Um, let's see. Oh, the messages I learned growing up. My dad was gay, narcissistic, sex addict, uh, who taught me that being desirable was the most important thing in the world. And I knew that I would never, ever, ever, ever be desirable. Um, I heard a speaker yesterday talk about being the pretty girl's fat friend all her life who like, you know, never, guys never wanted her. They just talked to her to get next to her friend. And I'm like, yep, that was me. Um, so for many years, that anxiety controlled my life. Um, by the time I was, went to college, I found Al-Anon and I started going and I went on and off for like 30 plus years. Um, and this is something I still have a fair amount of shame about because I never worked the steps in Al-Anon. I sat in those rooms and I used them as a, an opportunity to vent and share my feelings. And that was really valuable to me because I had never, ever, um, nobody asked me my feelings and I was an emotive kid. So like, they didn't ask me cause I was going to tell you anyhow, like, ah, um, so being in a place where it was safe to share my feelings without fearing criticism or rejection was huge. That probably saved my life that and the slogans. Cause I learned to use the 12 step slogans very early. And I literally, I white knuckled through so much of my life, just using those tools. So while I feel shame that I didn't get it sooner, I also am extremely, extremely grateful that I found that 
and I found 12 step and I really honestly believe it saved my life. Um, let's see. I was going to say there are some days my anxiety was so bad that I woke up and I was so afraid to get out of bed that I literally asked myself, do I want to live today? Um, and I never wanted to die. I never didn't want to live, but I literally had to ask myself because I knew that if I did, then the only solution was to get out of bed and do things. And it was that fundamental for me. And again, I, I fully believe and trust that my higher power was the force that told me, yes, you do want to live today. So you have to get out of bed. I mean, that's one of the you know, biggest things that I can you know, thank my higher power for is creating me with the, the ability to, to, to tap into that spiritual energy and appreciate and use it completely um, unconsciously. So I didn't do that. That was maybe one of the first examples of, of a higher power doing something for me that I could never, ever have done for myself. Oh, let's see. So I did have myself hospitalized. I did get put on some drugs and that probably helped me function. Um, and I started being bulimic sometime in my late teens, but I'm not sure how I learned about it. I don't know, but I started it and I found that uh, it gave me a lot of relief for my anxiety. Binging and purging was, I called it a pop-off valve. Um, it was something I could look forward to and anticipate. Uh, and, and the endorphin buzz I got from the purging was real. And I mean, I would feel like hell afterwards, but the anxiety would abate for a while. Um, I found a way sometime in my late teens, early 20s, and I think I call it, I audited OA on and off for a long time. I would stop into meetings and get a little bit of, of comfort or reassurance and then leave. Um, excuse me. My favorite acronym, acronym that I heard in OA is binge because I'm not good enough. And the focus on binging and purging gave me a, you know, it helped me shove that feeling to the back of my brain for a little while. Um, one of the first things I heard in an OA meeting that really stuck with me was this woman sharing about uh, how at the end of the day, she had a, a date with the refrigerator and the TV, and that was her happy place. And I was like, shit, that's me. That is exactly what I look forward to all day, every day. Oh, let's see. So I audited away, blah, blah, blah. Um, so coming from the background I did work, I, I literally think nobody ever once in my life asked me if I did my homework. I went to four high schools in five years. Um, and after my first year of college, I said, like, again, my higher power stepped in here because I was struck with the realization that my life was not about these two fucked up people who raised me. My life was about me. And if I was going to spend money and time and, and effort going to college, I might as well get something out of it. Um, and it was my own money. They didn't contribute a dime. Well, anyhow. Um, so I started working, working hard. So I went from being somebody who went to four high schools in five years and barely passed each year to becoming a doctor. <laughs> you know? I mean, and my higher power brought those things to me. 
Um, I ended up transferring to an amazing, amazing women's college randomly, just totally, I consider it totally random because I had like three inner college interviews that day. And I went to this one and then I drove, got lost and couldn't find the other ones. So I'm like, all right, I'll just go there. And it turned out to be the best thing that ever, ever happened to me. Cause if it wasn't for that, I would never have been exposed. I wouldn't have believed I could have friends. I wouldn't have fit in. It was the first place I felt that way. Um, and I would never in, in a million years have imagined that I could become a successful anything, let alone a doctor. Um, let's see. So blah, 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 you know, and then, you know, fast forward 30 years of feeling like a fraud, feeling terrified all the time, compensating for that by acting completely arrogant and, you know, like terrified of criticism. So I would jump down your throat before um, I thought you could give me criticism. And I know I scared a lot of people. Um, I had a fair number of people I worked with tell me after a year or two of working with me, like, wow, I was really scared of you when we first started working together. But then I learned, like, if you're actually mad at me, you'll tell me. So I don't have to think you're mad at me. And I, I was proud of that. I thought that was great. And now in retrospect, I'm like, wow, I thought it was great that people were scared of me and thought I was mad all the time. It was like the best self-defense mechanism I had. Um, but I can tell you for now in retrospect, I was a real asshole. I was such a pain to work with. I was so ungrateful. I, I thought, you know, my employer should be grateful to me for being there. And I believed, I, and I don't know, because again, childhood experience didn't teach me this, but I developed this sense of perfectionism, um, you know, to sort of buffer me from, from criticism. So I showed up on time. I did my job the best way I could, and I was good at it. And other than that, I was such a jerk. Um, and again, I have still have shame about that, but um, I was doing the best I could at the time, and I understand that better now. Um, so, and I, in that time, I gained and lost 20 to 30 or 40 pounds over and over. I became addicted, addicted to exercise in that if I didn't get my exercise, my anxiety would increase dramatically, but I've never liked exercises. I've always hated it. I've never been one of those person who did three or four hours of exercise a day, but I still managed to hurt myself a lot. Um, so like so many people, uh, when the pandemic started, I had been going to OA meetings in my relatively small town on and off, and I didn't relate to anybody in them. Um, it was the same five or six people every, at every meeting, and I just wasn't finding any recovery there. So pandemic comes, um, and I find the joy of Zoom meetings, the abundance and, and bounty of Zoom meetings that, um, really saved my life again. Um, so, and I think I didn't, I didn't start working the steps until I realized that I actually truly, truly was powerless. I can remember very clearly this moment of lying on the floor in my bedroom, feeling this feeling of despair and going, I have hated myself and thought I was ugly and fat and unlovable my whole life. What's it going to take to change that? And when I had that thought, I also had this striking realization that that's what the steps mean. I cannot change that. 
that is what I am powerless over. I cannot do this on my own. And Five minutes I, left. Awesome. Thank you. I had that feeling that if I know I can't do this on my own and I stop struggling, there is something else out there. There are all these times throughout my life when I should have died. I should have been in jail. All these bad things should have happened to me, but they didn't because somebody was taking care of me. Somebody was pushing me toward the things that are, were actually good for me. Um, like, I think I said, you know, I, I, I thought being desirable was the most important thing. And I pursued completely emotionally unavailable men for my whole life. And yet my higher power gave me the most loving, caring, emotionally supportive man in the world. And we have been together since 1993. And it took me 15 years to be willing to admit that we were in a long-term relationship because he was not what was sexy to me. He was not what I wanted, but God damn it, he stuck. And, and I stuck. And that is nothing so short of a miracle, a higher power miracle. Um, so again, awareness of the things that I am powerless over gives me the freedom. It's like when I hit a wall with something and I'm like, oh my God, I, there is nothing I can do to fix this. I start to feel grateful because it is no longer my responsibility. And that's an amazing <laughs> feeling to me like, oh, okay. Step back and breathe. Shut the squirrels in my brain down. Don't try and force a solution and trust that there is a higher power. Like I'm nervous as hell about speaking, but I also trust that if that there's a higher power in this meeting and that if one thing I say helps one person, then it's worth it. Right. I mean, we all hear that all the time, but now I understand and feel that. Um, so let's see, uh, so step, you know, took me 30 years to get past step one, um, two and three came out kind of naturally. And I'd be doing four and 10 my whole life. Like ever since I discovered, uh, 12 step because listing all the things I've done wrong and criticizing myself for them is one of my major skills. Um, and it is one of the things that's part of my abstinence, no self-criticism. Um, compassion. I had, compassion was not something, it was a foreign concept to me until I really, really, really started working this program and learning to compassion for myself, for the person I have been and the reasons I have been that way um, has been huge. It's been fundamental in, you know, any idea that I could learn to love myself. Um, so 410, no problem. Step six and seven are where I live now because I, like I said, I, I get relief when I realize what I am powerless over and I turn it over and then my brain shuts down and this, the higher power energy comes in. I don't like the word God. I've never liked the word God. My higher power is actually a dragon um, and she keeps me safe and she gives me what I need to get through the day. And she provides the resources I need to do the next right thing. Because I don't know what the hell the next right thing is. And when I get confused and anxious about it, I come to a meeting, I phone a friend, and I have been provided with the best friends in the world. Um, to me, the fact of the existence of 12-step programs, the fact that I can come in here 
and feel supported and loved is a, a higher power miracle. And one, a, another one of those main key ingredients that makes me understand that there has to be a higher power because this would not be happening without her. Um, let's see. Ah, I don't, let me see if I, oh, so uh, one last thing I want to say is that because of the way I was raised, I always lived in a fantasy world. And in my fantasy, I was beautiful, strong, athletic, perfect, brilliant. I was like this amalgamation of Lara Croft and Albert Einstein. And in that persona, everybody loved me. Everybody wanted to be near me. And, and I, it took me like a long time to realize that in that persona, I don't have any relationships or feelings. I don't have any vulnerabilities. That fantasy of who I should be is somebody who is completely, completely in charge and invulnerable. That's fine. Thank you so much, Nicole. And I didn't know there was anything wrong with that fantasy of myself. I thought that was how I really should be. And I was always comparing myself to that fantasy and falling short. Compare and despair, another one of the most brilliant OA slogans I've ever heard. So in recovery, I have learned that I am a compassionate human being. I am an emotionally vulnerable human being with lots and lots of big feelings, and that's okay. Um, And I have learned that if I don't keep coming back, I'm screwed. So that rigorous honesty part of my abstinence is absolutely essential because this is where I come to get that. Um, So I guess that's it. Thank you very, very much for listening to me share. This is the time for questions only. There is no sharing at this meeting. If you need to share, please do so with any of one of us after the meeting. Also, please remember that the opinions of the leader are my own, not those of OA as a whole. Uh, When asking questions, you need not identify yourself if you don't want to. If you asked a question last week, please wait until the first three questions have been asked before raising your hand. If anybody has a question, please use the raise hand icon. Melissa, thank you. Actually, I was hoping nobody would ask a question I could leave. But. <laughs> Hi, Rachel, thank you so much for your share. It was awesome. Can you just share with the group what your daily kind of spiritual routine looks like? Thanks. I knew somebody was going to ask that question. Um, and I was dreading it because the answer is I don't have, I hate routine. I rebel against discipline. I have hundreds of thousands of times in my life said, I'm going to meditate for 10 minutes. And I'm like, 10 minutes, that's easy. Nope, can't do it. Um, my routine is to talk to my higher power and to ask her to keep talking to me. That is all I can do. And when I do that, I get good inspiration. Um, I used to hate the 12 traditions for so long because you know, I just thought they were a nuisance. And now they are one of my the favorite, my favorite parts of the program, because I have friends who I call with a problem and they, you know, and they say, well, let's take it through the steps or let's take it through the traditions. And I get the answers that way. So I apologize for not sitting, waking up and writing for half an hour and reading for, you know, uh, affirmations books. I've done that when I was super, super, super anxious. I did that ritually every day. I had that kind of spiritual connection ritual. Now that I am not, now that I actually have an amazing life, 
I, I try and feel that connection and, and sometimes it fails. And those are the times that my friends really, really, really remind me to, 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 you know, dip back into that connection. So I guess my spiritual practice is connecting with other people in this, you know, who understand 12 steps. Thanks. I feel it's an, an inadequate answer, but there you go. Uh, Deb. Um, Rachel, that was amazing. Thank you so much. Um, can you share like your abstinence and, and, um, where, you know, the purging and where all of that has kind of circled around and what your abstinence is and all that. Um, so my abstinence has only three basic tenants, no, you know, no binging and purging, no beating up on myself and uh, rigorous honesty. And the no binging and purging and the rigorous honesty are really manageable. The no beating up on myself, I fall down on all the time. And so when I get asked, how long have you been abstinent? I'm like, uh, uh, since five o'clock this morning, because I have self-critical thoughts all the time, but um, I hear them happening. I hear them when they're happening and I recognize them and I don't react to them so much anymore. I, I hear them. And as I hear them, I'm like, that's bullshit. Go away. Um, so that's what the rigorous honesty helps me do. Thanks. Greg. Thanks, Rachel. Unfortunately, my fellow Arizonan just spoke and that's the exact same question I had. So I have to make something up immediately. And my question is to you, you meant the very first thing you mentioned was your absence was no recreational, which is your term, uh, throwing up. So does that mean in your food plan, how does that relate to what you eat? Does that mean you can eat whatever you want or whenever you want or what type of foods or as long as you don't recreationally throw it up? Because I don't throw up. And I never have, so I'm trying to kind of relate it first. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I have, there are no forbidden foods on my food plan. Um, I have a lot of trouble with foods that talk to me and yell at me. So there are a lot of foods that I don't keep in my house. If it's in my house, I will not be able to focus on anything else until I have consumed it all. Um, and that's interesting. That's been my lifelong pattern, but I've actually in, in recovery and abstinence found that sometimes there'll be a pint of ice cream in the fridge and I'll, or freezer and I'll forget about it for like three days. That is a miracle. That is my higher power doing something for me that I could not do for myself. I didn't get around to mentioning the promises, but I feel the promises in my life. And that is amazing. So I have fallen into, I hear people say they were struck abstinence. That didn't happen. But I have fallen into a, a pattern where I eat three meals a day, two optional snacks. And if I go out, you know, I can have a cocktail, I can eat what I want. And I ask myself if I'm full. I could not do that before. I had no body awareness. I did not know if I was full or hungry or starving or needy for something else. Feeling needy was the worst thing in the world to me growing up. And accepting that I have needs and feel needy a lot and need to do things, look for solutions that don't involve food, that's been huge. So I feel like I didn't give you a really good 
answer, but it's the only one I got. Thanks. Maxine. Hello, thank you so much for your share. I really appreciate it. Um, I wanted to know, and when you said you were difficult to work with <laughs> for years, um, how did you make amends for that? And, and what does your living amends look like around that? That's an excellent question. Um, I have, that's former employers and coworkers have a big chunk of my eighth and ninth steps. And I have had to work through that in a lot of ways. And I'm not going to call up somebody I, I worked for 30 years ago who sold that practice and may or may not still be alive to tell them, I'm sorry, I was such a fucked up bad person and made their life more difficult. That won't, doesn't help me. Um, I try to be aware of my behavior and remind myself all the time that I am not the most important person in the world. I am not the most important person in the room and other people are allowed to have their space. And that is really what my living amends looks like. Um, I've, I could, there are hundreds and hundreds of people I have worked with over the years. I did relief work. So I went from here to here to here to here. Um, so it's all about living amends for me. Uh, don't be an asshole. Or as Will Wheaton said, don't be a jerk. Thanks, Gloria. Hi, thank you. This is Gloria, compulsive overeater. Um, you talked about this a little bit, but I just wanted to know if you could give me a little bit more information about what in the program help you um, stop listening to the critical self voices. My higher power. Um, the only way I get in touch with and stay in touch with my higher power is to be reminded of it all the time. And I get reminded of my higher power in meetings. So I feel right now like I will never, ever, ever stop going to meetings. I hope that's true. You know, we all encounter a lot of people or have been the people who, oh, I was the person who came to meetings for a while and then stopped. Um, if I stop coming to meetings, I am completely screwed because I will start listening to the, the own conductor in my head again. And I will stop hearing the voice that says, don't do anything, just sit there, uh, you know, phone a friend. And yeah, that's it. I have, no, I have no control or power over that. I have to turn it over to my higher power. Katrina. Hi, I'm Katrina Grateful, Recovering Compulsive Overeater and Food Addict. Thank you so much for your share, Rachel. I um, One, if you would be open to receiving phone calls, if you could post your phone number, that would be awesome. Um, I am going to have to scoot out early. A lot of what you said was pretty similar to my, my path in life. I love the idea of the dragon and your higher power. And I'm curious how that move, how you moved into a place of belief and positiveness and faith with that higher power, given how you grew up. Um, that is, thank you, another excellent question. And it is an ongoing work in progress all the time because, so I had another experience one time where, and it was a few years ago, I heard somebody talk about core values and they were like, well, you should figure out what your core values are. And a couple days later, I was in misery 
And again, laying my bedroom floor has this magic spot. I have been lying down in the exact same spot on my, my bedroom floor. And I say, well, what are my core values? And this ticker tape of words scrolls across my brain. And I did not consciously think that. It just came out of nowhere or oh, out of my higher power. You know, when something comes out of nowhere, I now know it, it is coming from my higher power. And those core values were strength, honesty, trust, compassion, joy, love. Strength and honesty made sense to me. Compassion, joy, and love, uh, trust, those were so foreign to me. I was like blown away. I'm like, what? what? Those are my core values? What the hell? But they stuck. They stuck in my brain. And over time, they have helped me recognize that I was not born to be a hard-ass bitch. I always believed that that's, I'm from New York. That's, you know, how I grew up. I got sent home in first grade for saying fuck you to my teacher. And I didn't even know what it meant. I just heard it so often that I said it when I was mad. Um, I'm, I forgot the question. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, how did, how do I do that? It's such a work in progress. I look for those times. I look for the miracles in my life and they are so evident to me. Um, I remember, you know, when I was a teenager, I thought I was destined to live in poverty and blah, blah, and have this miserable life and nobody would ever love me. I have the most loving husband. I have the best friends. I have the most beautiful house. I love my life now. And that's the thing that keeps pointing me back to that. Find my higher power, find the miracles in my life. So I guess you could call it a gratitude list. But again, if I, somebody tells me to make a gratitude list every day, I'll be like, eh. So my higher power provides that for me. Thanks. Thank you so much, Rachel. Don't forget the number. Uh, yeah, I asked Deb to send it to you because the chat is closed to me right now. But And I think she sent me yours. Uh, Jackie. Hi, Rachel. Thanks so much for your share. Uh, my question is... Um, how do you draw the line between a normal size meal and too much? And also how do you overcome those urges on those days that I kind of refer to as hungry days where the urge to eat more is really strong? Thank you. Yeah. So for me, the hungry times are uh, stimulated by anxiety or anger most of the time or fear, well, fear and anxiety. Um, and so I, again, I, sometimes I struggle with that. My brain starts whirling and I'm just feeling this like, nah, 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 nah. I call it the mean reds. It's from breakfast at Tiffany's because blues doesn't describe it for me, but the blue mean reds are like, when my brain is going, you need, I need, I need, I need, I need relief from this discomfort. Um, so when I feel that kind of discomfort, getting in touch with my body, I recognize now what that feels like physically what my, you know, my adrenal glands are pumping and my heart rate's going up and my skin is getting flushed. And I mean, I feel those things in my body now. And those are triggers I recognize um, that tell me I need something else. I don't need food. Um, and learning what it feels like to be hungry and to not be afraid that I'm, uh, you know, I've been so afraid of being hungry my whole life and learning to not be afraid of that I feel like a cop-out because people are asking me these questions and all I can say is I turn to my higher power and I don't even believe in God. So why am I saying that? I'm not some spiritual guru, but I keep hearing this coming out of my mouth. And I'm like, I guess I've 
been doing that better than I thought, which is kind of the definition of my program. Uh, you know, I, I don't believe it's working and I don't believe I'm good enough and I don't believe I'm doing anything. And then I sit back and go, well, wait a minute. Look at the evidence. So I don't know. Again, not sure if it's helpful That's at all. That's time. <laughs>